Welcome to our 53rd episode of Rising Tide. This is David Helvarg and my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everyone. And today we're talking with Wahini Project Director Dione Barra, a Mexican-American woman born in a migrant farm family that settled in East Salinas, California. The idea for the Wahini Project started when, as an adult, Dion took up surfing and, like Rel Sun and many famous Wahinis, surfer girls, was stoked and transformed. Since 2010, Dion has been using surfing as a way, maybe we should say as a wave, of empowerment for young women around the world who, because of class, race, or gender, might not otherwise have the chance to feel their stoke and their power as surfers helping restore themselves in our blue world. So thanks for joining us, Dion. Thank you for having me. Dion, I'd like to ask you, what inspired you to start the project, the Wahini Project? It was uh, 12 years ago that we started 2010. And at that time, I was a new surfer. I had been surfing just a handful of months. Um, I had watched my sons grow up surfing, but I had never, I'd always been too afraid of going in the water. And um, at 38, I was asked by a friend, she said, hey, does anybody want to try surfing with me? And I just thought, it was like, it was really the first invitation I'd ever had. And I was like, heck yeah. And I wasn't a great swimmer at that time. I had very little ocean experience at all, um, but I wanted to try it. And so I surfed. It took a few months to finally get my pop up for the first time. But it was at that point and that feeling that I had that was like nothing else riding a wave. And I felt like here I am. I felt like just this little Mexican girl from East Salinas and um, thought, how in the world did I get to this point and to this place that I could enjoy this? And I thought, whatever I'm going to do in my life, I want to bring more girls like me into the ocean. And so that was that's how it started. So tell us about where you grew up. I grew up in uh, the Salinas Valley, which is known in the central coast of California as the salad bowl of the world. It produces most of the produce that goes literally every corner of the of the planet. And my dad was a field worker himself. They were migrant workers. And so we had that family history of not working the earth, but not being really connected to it and working in nature, but not being connected to it. And so I grew up in a, in a Mexican Latino community and it was all sidewalks. I was lucky that my grandma lived in a little bit of a more of a rural, rural area. And so I did get to like work in her garden a little bit, but the connections to nature, specifically from where I'm from, are very few and far between. And it was, I lived there in the 70s and 80s. And through that time, it was increasingly getting more unsafe just to like play outside, play at the playground, um, you know, ride my bike through the neighborhoods. As I was getting older, my mom was putting more limits on like how far I could go because it was gang activity was rising at that time in the early 80s. So it wasn't very safe. And so that's where I, I came from. It very, very strong, beautiful Hispanic community. Um, but for kids to just be out and feeling free, it wasn't that kind of a place. And so when did you first get exposed to the ocean? 
It was as a little kid, my mom would um, take me to Moss Landing Beach and we would go on just, we would just walk the beach. And I remember it being like, the waves were always super powerful and it would be windy and there was just a lot of energy there. And I loved it. I loved the cold wind. Um, she allowed me to go in to my ankles in the ocean. So that was, I could feel the cold water on my feet. So I have that memory. And then every year we would go to Monterey and for the 4th of July and our all of our family would post up all day at uh, Monterey City Beach and wait for the fireworks. But I remember to this day the feeling of being able to be at the beach the entire day and to be able to get sand like all over my body, all over my clothes and be there from the morning until night. And I remember how cold like my feet would feel at night as the, the temperature got colder. But I've just held on to that memory my entire life, always feeling like I wanted to come back to that. And you decided that you wanted to work with young girls. Tell us why you chose to focus on young girls and and what you do with them. Yeah. Um, ironically, I had in my career been a birth doula, parent educator, birth doula, and I had worked with women having babies. And they were always so afraid. And it was like, how do we work with women through this time of intense fear and walk them through it and and be with them, not leave them and help them feel like everything was going to be okay and that they could do this. And so I had done that hundreds of times with women. And at the end of their births, they would always just feel like, so like, I did it. I feel so strong and powerful. And I actually, when I went surfing, I I felt the same way. I felt like I am terrified. I am definitely going to die out here. Um, it's, you know, learning to surf on the central coast is not easy. It's not pretty. It's everything that's difficult and challenging and pushes you beyond where you think your limit is. And so I went, when I started teaching the girls, I realized that I was, they were scared, they were afraid. And what we had to do is just partner up with them and say, you're doing great you are okay. You are safe. I am here with you. And when I realized it was like the same conversation I was having, I thought, if we can invest this time into young girls, they're going to know how strong they are and they're going to know how to face fear. So when they're adults, perhaps facing fear isn't going to be a new realm, isn't going to be a new place that they haven't been before. And I really feel that's what we're finding is that as we have this relationship with the girls, we see them through or we talk with women and they say, yeah, I, I faced this fear and now I felt like I could do this in the world or I could confront this fear or face this challenge in my life. So the ocean is, is a metaphor and that's what we use it for is to teach what can we teach about life in this relationship that we have with the ocean and then just move it over into um, our everyday, into our everyday. Well, and there seems to be a real connection in your uh, careers because the ocean is the birthplace of life. And, uh, you know, we're all from salt water, both on an individual and evolutionary basis. But what, what were the mechanics of um, you got in the water? 
Uh, and again, listeners need to understand this is not Gidget. This is not the wide sandy beaches of Southern California. You get in the water in a full wetsuit and booties and gloves, hoodie. It's cold. It's challenging. You got this stoke. And what were the mechanics of bringing it to young girls and, and turning it into a uh, a nonprofit and a career? Well, it turned into a, like a word of mouth. Like once we like I introduced women to like some small surf clinics. And then once the women experienced it, it's like that's all it takes is women to know something. And then they start spreading it. And they realize like, yeah, who are the young girls in my life that could benefit from this? So it was it it was very it was known very early that this was going to be a, a community grassroots movement. And it would start with women teaching other women. And I learned from other women how to even teach surfing. It was like this knowledge was imparted to me. And then we shared it amongst each other to share with young girls. And it grew from, you know, small groups of maybe eight to 10 girls. It grew to, then it grew to 30 um, girls. And then before we knew it, we had a year long program. And that was the idea is that I wanted to keep girls in the water throughout the year so they could experience the changes at the beach because the seasonal changes at the beach bring different animals. They bring different, all sorts of different wildlife populations, as well as they could see the human impact that was happening on the beach year round. And that those two combinations would inspire a deep-rooted passion in the girls to want to not only continue the relationship with the ocean, but continue it so much that they would want to help protect it. So the longevity of the girls being in the program is, is the gem, as well as bringing girls that come from all sorts of different backgrounds so it was, and then once everybody saw the girls on the program, in the program, then they, then the boys wanted to do it. And so we have a program now that serves all youth and we're really striving for now is to bring in a, a, adaptive programs. So regardless of people's, what we think a, a physical ability might be, or what a perceived disability might be that we bring anybody to the beach who wants to have a relationship with it and who wants to engage with it. And we can make that happen with any human. I want to go back to you talking about the issues because it's such a cool way to bring youth to the ocean and then have them learn about all of the challenges that we're facing with ocean protection. So can you give us a few examples of how you've incorporated um, advocacy into your surfing program? It was so easy. It was like they handed it to us. We started seeing the increasing amount of cruise ships come into the bay. And our bay's not that big. And on our side of the bay, you know, our bay is like Monterey. It's the Monterey Bay, but it's like Monterey and comes around Moss Landing, goes to Watsonville, and then circles all the way to the point of Santa Cruz. But in our part, when a cruise ship comes in, it Santa Cruz might not even be aware of it, but it's enormous in our bay. So it's it was so easy to see this like huge... A boat come into our bay and start to question if it was going to cause any damage. Could it potentially cause any damage uh, or leave a footprint? Like what would the footprint be? So it was easy to start beginning conversations with the kids who are again there every week. 
to and go, oh, there's the cruise ship again. Tell us, what do you think? They start, we ask them the questions. What could the potential hazards come? What are the pros and cons of having this ship come into the bay? And they, even as children, they didn't really have any pros. They couldn't see anything that would be helpful. They knew enough to know that one thing, and a spill. If that ship spills, how is it going to affect how we use the beach? And that was devastating to them. Like we would not be able to come to the beach. Uh, the one education piece that we got to bring to them was about the sound pollution. And regardless if there was a spill, this boat is it's on. It doesn't turn off. And it's constantly emitting noise. And it's emitting an underground noise and or underwater noise. And so we got to do a lot of education on um, underwater noise pollution. We did a, a showing for the community on Sonic Sea, which is all about the sound pollution. And then we became a voice as a nonprofit in the really the movement asking the city of Monterey to stop their them allowing um, cruise ships to enter the bay. And the kids jumped on creating petitions. They did it in their own voice. They came and had people sign them all over the beach. They took all those petitions and took them to city council meetings and presented them to the city council. And they got to talk about how important the ocean was to them and that the loss potentially of uh, the wildlife and realizing that it's a sanctuary where animals come as a haven that this was a relationship that they were hoping that the city of Monterey would discontinue. And they had signs. They, they, they showed up where people were getting off of cruise ships. And it was really beautiful how they um, really took responsibility all because of this relationship that they had with the ocean that started with us. So what, what's the age group of these girls? And then also you started in Monterey, but you spread to uh, Mexico. So talk about that if you would. Yeah, we um, started with the age of seven, but now we start them at the age of four, four all the way up to te teenagers. And the work in Mexico started because of my first surf trip that I did when I went there. And I was in a little Pueblo that was gorgeous and beautiful. And it happened to be the state that my family is from. And so I had a lot of gratitude that I could come back as like, as a really a guest and um, have a vacation in this beautiful place where my family was, uh, came from. That would be the state of? It was the state of Nayarit. Yeah. And, um, and that's the Bay of Banderas, which we would also learn that they're also working a lot on protection. And we got involved on an environmental piece, some pieces there after the fact, but in the Pueblo, there's just a bunch of white surfers or a bunch of people from different countries surfing. And you see very little, um, very few kids in the breaks. And then there was definitely, at the time, this was 12 years ago, really not any girls. And the kids in the Pueblo didn't know how to swim. And so we contacted a nonprofit there called Peace Mexico that I had just seen some signs that they had had about, you know, the work they did in the community and reached out to them and asked them if we could keep coming back and work with them to bring their kids to the beach. And 
teach them how to swim and surf and be in the ocean and do some beach cleanups. And so we did that for probably six or seven or eight years back and forth. And then working with people who lived there or people who worked with a nonprofit. And um, sometimes we would take some of our youth there so they could um, have an opportunity to give back and to help and support. And so it was like a no-brainer that we would return to that community, especially because it was where my family was from. And then from there it grew to, okay, well, what other countries are on the radar or do we have relationships with or other people have family members with that we can support them and their their breaks, their surf breaks to do the sort of to duplicate. And so we were able to do that in different countries as well. So how do you keep uh, these girls connected? You've got programs in Monterey Bay. You've got programs in Mexico. How do you get them connected to each other and to other girls and women who surf around the world? We did it through, um, you know, we can't bring them all together at one time, but we could do it through the arts. And the arts was a beautiful way for us to um, share and trade with each other. And so we had one project we had was this beautiful, like sort of like a quilting project where every every destination we would go to or every outreach we would go to, we would take it and girls, we had girls put their handprints on it. So it started in Mex. it started in the Philippines actually. And um, we did a little video like with the girls talking and um, just sharing their lives and then did the, the handprints. And then that handprint, it went to Mexico. And then we did the same thing with the girls there and added more handprints. And then the girls like see the other handprints and they see the different language. Uh, that went also to Brazil. It went to Peru. It went to uh, the Gaza Strip, even. It went to India. It went to Bangladesh. And so every time the girls got to see like, oh, we're connected and the languages and then the videos of one another. And that was a beautiful way that they could say like, oh, you're here. We're there. And uh, that was one of my favorite projects. So the arts and the, the expression of, um, of, of something tactile to share and to touch of what, with one another, like they had this, you know, in the photos, it was really beautiful. And that was, that was one big project that we did. So how many girls are now involved? And, and when you first started training them, what, what sort of surprised you in terms of the, the teaching surfing? Um, what's a, Prize. Well, now, I mean, we started, we've worked with over 15, probably getting close to up to like 18,000 youth. Uh, we work with at least 2,500 a year. And now our main focus is just um, our county, which is Monterey County. Um, we've pulled back from a lot of our um, outreach that we've done in different countries. The Philippines is holding on strong. We get to support um, a group in the Philippines but what surprised me the most was that we would see the girls as little girls and that they would stick with us and that they would become volunteers with us. And then they would be old enough to work for us. And many of our girls now have like moved on to college, careers, some are moms. And so I didn't realize like we would really be connected for, you know, it's been over a decade and so much happens in a decade. And 
our lives have become interwoven and we've seen, um, sadly, we've had parents that have died in this time. Um, we've had different tragedies happen, but, and also many celebrations. Um, one of our beautiful surf instructors who started with us when she was 18 and her and I traveled back and forth to Mexico for years. She's 30 and having her first baby. And it's like these celebrations are all part of life. Even the, the tragedies are part of life. So we're just interwoven and it, you know, we, we become a fabric in one another's lives. And I didn't really foresee that. I, I, you know, I look back 10 years ago, oh, we're doing this. It's so fun. We're doing these things. We're meeting these people. We're traveling. We're doing this. But I didn't know we were going to be like interconnected possibly, you know, for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and so that's been a beautiful part of it. And speaking of going to the beach, I noticed that you have some adult programs in Sayulita, Mexico, where in addition to surfing in Monterey Bay, which is very cold, um, I have enjoyed the surf in Sayulita. So I'm excited to hear more about that. Yeah. So we came up with the idea from going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we love Mexico. We love that area so much is um, what can we do to bring adults there? And give them that blue mind, that time out, give them something, a way to enjoy interacting with the ocean. We make them very affordable, but they also become a fundraiser for us. Uh, but it's been great to bring adults and we've done men and women's trips because adults haven't had a, a lot of opportunity to take care of themselves either. And we've been in a time, again, where people haven't been traveling, they've been isolated, and it's just so stressful. We thought it was like the women, you know, we want to help take care of the women. And then the, the dads went and they were just had such a blessed, grateful time to be able to just indulge in everything ocean. And so we do, you know, we have some groups where they're very beginners, like, and they get a surf lesson from a super rad, amazing surf instructor in uh, Mexico and they just do like the baby steps. And I'm like, they're ocean do like, oh, you're doing great. Paddling out alongside them, guiding them. And so they get that just ocean time that they've probably never, many of them have never had, or they're like coming back to it after like 20 years, or I haven't been anywhere since, you know, before I had kids, I haven't traveled. And so it's just this time of giving back to themselves and refueling and and everybody needs it. Again, going back to the blue mind, the science tells us being on ear, on in near on top of water changes our physiology. It changes our heart rate. It it uh, turns on endorphins that help us relax. The color of blue just instantly will help us just looking at it. And so this time in the water that we've made in Mexico is um, is really important. We're going to continue to do it, and it's a great time for adults to have with one another to just get back to themselves. Well, and as you say, uh, you protect what you love. So, what are the uh, you know you talk about ocean noise pollution, and of course, sound is the light of the sea. It's it's how creatures uh, breed and feed and you know, human-generated noise. What are some of the uh, environmental programs that uh, you've incorporated into your 
surf programs today? Uh, one thing we did is during COVID, we actually opened a store and we opened a refill store. And I had the idea for years that, you know, we're, all, we're always talking to kids about uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, and so we're always like trying to expand that. Well, what can we do to reduce? And in, in my mind, I thought, and I had seen this in other cities, we need to reuse our, our containers. <laughs> How many plastic bottles are we seeing or toothbrushes? Um, and so opening a refill store has been one major way that we've been able to begin a program that extends past our just Wahini program and into the community to invite other people into this idea of protecting the ocean. And it's such an easy thing to do. You bring your, your previously used container and you can refill it with your shampoo, your soap, your lotion, um, even your wetsuit soap. And so we have, we have soaps that aren't packaged. We have even leashes, surf leashes that we ask, can you send us the surf leashes without the package? Can you send us surf wax without the package? Can, so we're asking um, people who make things, send it to us without the package. We don't need it. And it's saving us money. And in some cases, we can actually go pick it up ourselves. And so we're showing our community how we can be more reliant on our community resources, uh, people who are making things locally, and we can be all part of the change and we can, we're there together doing it. Now, my biggest problem with doing an ocean nonprofit is you end up less time in the ocean. So what's your favorite surf break and when's the last time you got there? Well, I was actually in the, my favorite break here where I live. So silly. It's called the wharf. Um, I had a child seven years ago and after I had him, he was my fourth, but after I had him, I am just, I just want it to be easy. I don't want it to be super challenging and be like going against wind and like being afraid. I'm like, I just want it to be easy. So I get to roll up at Wharf 2 in Monterey, jump out of my car and get on a little tiny wave and ride it like a, just like round and round and round. Catch the wave, go back, catch it, go back. So that's actually my favorite little spot here locally. And I did go, I did surf like five waves yesterday because I was helping um, in our program yesterday. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to help in the program. And I caught the tiniest little baby waves and I was elated. Um, and so that's all that I need, but I, it doesn't happen very often. And my other favorite break is, is Mexico. It's, uh, it's, in Punta de Mita, Nayari, my it's just a favorite because it never gets too big. It's not too, too crowded. There's always a wave that I can catch. And so, and I love that. And I got to be there um, like maybe six weeks ago. But my goal is always to get back to either there or a wave like it. I like easy. My friend Charlie down in San Diego used to be my roommate in Ocean Beach, San Diego. When I go down there, there's this groin, this rock wall. And he calls it the geriatric escalator because from the beach, you can just take an outward current that drops you right in the lineup. That's my speed. Yeah. We've also been finding some great places in Baja that we can drive to. It takes like a couple days, but they're isolated and we're literally the only people there. So that's a goal that we try to get to like once a year is like, where can we go where really no one else will be. And that's a challenge when you're surfing is to find that break where you're not going to be colliding with others and have 
bumping accidents. So I do appreciate a nice calm wave where there's not too many people so you can really get your jam going on. I like the idea that you have young boys now who come up to you and say, can I surf too? Is surfing just for girls? Yeah. And I love it because Wahini means girl. And I thought, well, when we work with the boys, it's going to have to have a different name because it means girl. And not one boy has flinched about wearing a Wahini logo. They're like, I am Wahini. I am the very essence of being human. We created a whole manifesto. It's like, Wahini is who I am, who I represent, who I want to be, how I want to support, how I want to take care of the ocean. And they've all not hesitated on taking on the identity of being Wahini. And of course, surfers are like sea otters and dolphins and that were indicator species for uh, the health of the ocean. So here in California, they say, um, stay out of the water 72 hours after a rainstorm because of all the polluted runoff coming off the land. And and how do you deal with that in terms of educating the kids to the risks and also to what they can do about them? Well, one thing is when we have a day like that, we often still bring them to the beach. We don't cancel because we want them to, we want them to see it. We don't want it to be like this, this notice that they get, like we want them to be aware and so we still come to the beach. They don't go in it. And then we get them to really miss it because they're like, oh, like, you know, they have to have that little pull, like it's right there. But it, and the, at this one place in Monterey, the wharf, there's actually a runoff drain right there. So you can see the pollution coming through it from the sidewalks. And it doesn't, so they, they can see what's happening. And the great thing about seeing what coming in, what's coming out of the, the runoff, what they can see the runoff is then you can say, oh, how many of this, how much of this are we responsible for? It's so right there, like in real time. How can we create solutions around what we actually see coming through the runoff? And so it's a great education. That idea that a storm drain truly is a way to collect water from neighborhoods and streets and miles inland that just flow straight to the ocean and very few of those storm drains have any kind of filters and if, even if they did you're picking up you know animal waste and you're picking up bacteria oil etc so that is a that's amazing that you actually are making that correlation for them because so many people that I talk to have no idea about storm drains and and their uses and where they go and and also that farm to ocean connection and in monterey with the sanctuary actually working with the farmers to reduce sediment runoff and reduce you know the pollutants from agrochemicals yeah and actually when you asked about programs we work with a organic uh farm with a nonprofit called terra farms and we're working with small farmers to bring bok veggie boxes you know like a co-op but we're doing it as an education piece so we can show people how we're supporting our, an organic farmer, but the importance of how organic farming is to the ocean and it grow, growing your own food, second best, getting it from an organic local farmer is one of the best things you can do for the ocean. So that's one new thing that we, we pro we've been doing it a little over a year is to have um, drop-offs a couple of drop-offs for our community to take part with in this um, organic farming nonprofit. 
And in our book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, one of them is eat more vegetarian and organic. Yeah. So it's another piece that we can fit in there. It is great. And we've just kicked off our ocean-friendly farming program. And so I'm going to have to get your the contact info of that, of Tara. Okay. Because you're right. What we do inland, whether it's 500 miles or 50 feet, it is so incredibly important that we make that connection and then teach our children and other children how they can actually protect the ocean by protecting the land. So with that, I just want to, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Um, we love what you're doing. I'm sure the families love it. The kids love it. And I hope that I get to see you out on one of the breaks, whether it's cold water or warm. <laughs> warm. That would be <laughs> ideal. Let's meet where it's warm. <laughs> so thank you so much. And uh, thank congratulations you. on your success. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helbarg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.